Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with Dan Vukovic about his book, China and Orientalism, Western Knowledge Production and the PRC that just came out in 2012. Now, this is a book that uses a wide range of sources, including uh, film, fiction, historiography of modern China, and the kinds of documents that historians have typically used in order to construct and write history of both major moments and major phenomena in the history of modern China. It incorporates a lot of theoretical materials, and it incorporates a lot of materials coming out of the modern PRC. Um, It's really interesting, and the main uh, sort of thrust of the book, as you'll hear about for most of the interview, is a very clear argument that Bukovic is making about a new sinological form of Orientalism and the the kinds of characteristics that that form of Orientalism takes and the way that that form of Orientalism uh, both differs from the kind of classic form as put forth in the writings and the writings of and elaborations of the writings of Edward Said. Um, and really this, this is an argument that speaks to not just the writing of history, but also uh, how we understand the PRC in the world right now. Um, it's, uh, it was a really interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dan. Hi, Carla. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Dan Vukovic about his book, China and Orientalism, Western Knowledge Production and the PRC, that came out in 2012 with Rutledge. Now, this is a very rich book and an extraordinarily ambitious um, and very um, sort of elegantly argued book that I think is going to generate a lot of interest and um, a lot of discussion um, in uh, circles of people who are interested in China, either who work on China, with China, um, or just interested in thinking with China. So congratulations, um, Dan, and thanks so much for making time to talk with us today um, from home. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, that's, thank you very much. No, my pleasure. Um, so Dan, can you start us off by um, telling us a little bit about how did you come to this topic in particular, this particular field of or approach toward um, China studies? Well, you know, um, and what seems almost like another lifetime ago. I was in graduate school at uh, Urbana, Illinois, and had just kind of completed my exams and was kind of revising my proposal, that kind of thing. And I had originally planned on doing something within American studies and critical theory, basically. So my my kind of longstanding interest was in critical theory, post-structuralism, and particularly uh, Marxism. And it's kind of convoluted, but I, the, I think the connection to China in some ways begins with Russia. So what I had started to do was to read uh, Isaac Deutscher's uh, biography of Leon Trotsky and uh, got very interested then in the, the question of revolution, basically, because so much of the studies have been all kind of purely theoretical about you know, concepts, ideas, and even the Marxism was very abstract 
you know, through Fred Jameson and people like that. So anyway, I got interested in that question of, well, actually existing Marxism and revolutions in the world. So that's kind of going on as I'm starting out to write. But then I started watching um, some of the Chinese cinema. In particular, I think the first one was Farewell, My Concubine, the Chen Kaiga film. And then kind of piqued my interest because it's such a kind of mesmerizing film, but kind of a, a kind of strange film, right? So even then, I think I realized that it's there's a kind of beginning and end of that film where it, it has this th almost throwaway references to the gang of four and kind of scapegoating them for these, these in the cultural revolution for these horribly kind of complex and tragic lives of the central characters. So already you're kind of aware, okay, there's something going on here about historiography and history and how that's represented. Right? And then the, I think the next one was um, Yellow Earth, Right, the first film, or second film, I guess he did, also with John Gimel, which I think, as I wrote about a bit in the film chapter of the book, which I think is actually this really kind of profound meditation on the the, the prospect of the revolution, and, and even though it's set in the kind of you know pre-49, late 30s period, it's also, I think, about that contemporary moment of the 80s and 90s. Um, so that basically led to a whole lot of reading uh, within the kind of history of the revolution. Uh, so William Hinton and other people like that kind of got me started. Uh, but then it, it kind of meshed with the kind of theoretical interest in historiography and post-colonial theory, and particularly kind of Edward Said's book, which I'd studied before, that kind of thing. And I was just really struck by, uh, as I began to read kind of in area studies and, and, and more popular culture or media kind of discourse of it, basically what people were able to say about China so easily. And it, and it just struck me as being, you know, not a very sophisticated discourse, right? And, and if you kind of read between the lines or not even that much between them in some ways, you see, well, this is really kind of tendentious, if not kind of even offensive rhetoric in some ways, right? And I was struck by the fact that, you know, you, it would be much more difficult to say these kind of things or speak in this kind of um, this kind of paternalistic way about India or South Asia or even Mexico and Latin America, right? I mean, I'm talking like within kind of intellectual discourse, right? And I think that was partly because, you know, the, the kind of post-colonial turn uh, critiques from within anthropology, for example, even through history departments to some extent, certainly from literature departments, that kind of thing. Right? So I was really struck by there kind of being a gap there. Right? So it, it went uh, from being a, just a, a kind of interest to a uh, almost obsession with the question of how you know, China's written and, and a kind of fascination actually with, with Chinese politics. Right? So my interest, even really from the beginning, unlike I think maybe even most people that studied China, um, it wasn't through the language, it wasn't through the ancient kind of glories and culture, it wasn't through the, the, the kind of Buddhism or Confucianism or even martial arts or, or even the food, although I quickly have become a kind of obsessed with Chinese food. I'm glad to live in Hong Kong for that reason. Um, <laughs> but really with Chinese politics, which, you know, many people just want nothing to do with it, I guess, in some ways, because it just seems like, oh, it's all a terrible, tragic story or it's 
just not much interesting going on politically. But for me, from the beginning, it was just a fascinating aspect. Oh, I see the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Sorry, for our listeners who can't see the video, uh, that's the, that's Habibna, the New Books in East Asian Studies cat, who's trying to get in on the conversation. But I'm oh, sorry, I'm sorry, she interrupted. No, he's welcome. I like it. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, it's just the, the for me, the question of Chinese politics was just one of great interest, right, and, and resonance. And I think that it's not always talked about in a way that's giving allowance for its kind of complexities and, and interests. Yeah. So it kind of went. I went from kind of critical theory in American studies to kind of post-colonial theory and, and, and China, a representation of China in a kind of deep sense, and, and politics. And you're making actually, um, at least in the preface, a very explicit um, call here, if I can put it yeah. that strongly, for um, kind of the insertion of a kind of voice into the discussion about Chinese studies that is broadly interdisciplinary, that is coming from a kind of background and training that's not necessarily um, what you assume from an area studies kind of training that does incorporate this broader, more sort of wide-ranging sort of um, set of approaches and expertise and, and so forth. So I think you're, you're describing actually kind of a very wonderful um, embodiment of that. So this is so these um, this is your first book, yes, um, and it, That's right. and you did a dissertation um, that was prior to this. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, for listeners who might be interested again yeah. in this process? Yes. Um, how closely does this hew to the dissertation, and were there any major um, sort of major transformations that stick out that were particularly important to the process of? turning this into the first book or major challenges or major sort of um, epiphanies or, or anything like that that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, it was, the, the book is actually a, a kind of revision, a fairly extensive revision with, I'm trying to remember, at least two new chapters, two or three new chapters. I can't even quite remember now. Um, but uh, really kind of based in the dissertation, but having hopefully transformed it um, adequately and try to update as much as possible kind of thing. But, uh, I mean, I took a good bit of time actually doing the dissertation after I'd, you know, gone through this process that I was just describing. I mean, we're talking like basically several years of just trying to get immersed in the field of China studies and representation of China and so on and so forth. So it was a long time percolating. Um, but it is, it's fairly, I don't want to say close to it, but it is kind of based in that initial uh, project. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was fortunate that I was able to do a dissertation that was somewhat book-like, even though, you know, publishers will tell you your dissertation can't be a book except in really rare circumstances, and that kind of, mm-hmm. which I think is good advice, but, you know, mine was a good bit of time in the works and um, I was able, I think, just to keep at it with uh, continuing to read and, and, and kind of rethink, I guess, in particular, the first chapter and the, and the kind of last chapter, mm-hmm. yeah, more theoretical or methodological ones. So other than that, I mean, it was the, the big thing, of course, is uh, there are so many authors and perspective uh, professors and tenure track people and so few presses. So you spend much of your time 
you know, working with that proposal and sending it to them and waiting, basically, and hoping you hear back and that kind of thing. So, and I've been trying to get some of our graduate students here to already kind of think in those terms. Like, it can be a tremendous amount of pressure put on that dissertation stage. Well, your dissertation's got to be a book, right? Which, to be honest, in the humanities or kind of English department I came out of, those feels that's probably pretty close to the truth, actually, because it's so insanely competitive and there's so few kind of proper tenure-track jobs as opposed to part-time. So there is a lot of pressure there, but I think that, you know, hopefully it can be kind of still navigated. I, I think that if I tell this to students, you know, in case any of you are listening, you know, folk, find your problem, basically. Like, figure out what that, what your kind of intellectual kind of subfield and problem is that you want to wrestle with, right? Rather than just necessarily being trendy and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I've had people tell me, look, you know, Orientalism is so 1980s. <laughs> I kind of think so, you know, why are you still working on Orientalism? But I think if you, you know, the fundamental problems are always going to be there, right? Around questions of you know, interpretation, epistemology, representation, so, yeah, so... Thank you. So now, so you've um, sort of led us into the, you know, talked a little bit about the first chapter and the last chapter and revising that. And so why don't, this is a great opportunity, I think, for us to get right into it. Now, um, the you start us off in the book with a preface that outlines and makes very explicit a very clear argument that's going to form the basis of and determine the shape of the rest of the book. So I think it's appropriate um, to start by um, asking you, can you talk about that argument in perhaps it's um, broad scope, um, and then the, the rest of the chapters for listeners um, who are, are with us today um, will go on to elaborate different facets of that argument and different um, kind of areas of evidence for your elaboration of that argument. So what's the basic uh, big argument of the book? Well, I think it's at some level that's very, actually, which is just that, that, that kind of critique of Orientalism. And, and maybe a little more broadly, kind of post-colonial term, that, that kind of question of the writing of the other most broadly, but Orientalism specifically, um, that it applies to the study of China, basically, including kind of specialized uh, area studies or academic work. Right? I mean, because it's, it's easy to look at something, and I put a little bit of it in the beginning of that chapter, something like the Jack London story, which is so obviously kind of over-the-top racist about China or Orientalist writings and other ways, right? But it's, if, if you look at uh, Saeed's book from 78, the whole last part of it is really about more specialized, um, you know, more cerebral and, and kind of contemporary social scientific types of writing, yeah? So I think that's what I wanted to look at because that's, of course, the dominant way that China's written or studied now. Um, so, yeah, uh, more specifically, I've tried to argue that, you know, since the 70s, basically since Said was, was working on this, uh, Orientalism has shifted in a couple ways. One is simply that it's about China, right? So Said's book is not so concerned with what he calls the Far East and China, right? He's looking at the first kind of threat in the first Orient, if you will, which was, you know, what's now the Middle East, Right, Europe's uh, footsteps. Right, so that it, you know, China becomes the new object of it as it rises, especially in the eighties, 
90s and beyond, the kind of post-Mao period. Okay. Um, and my argument is also that it's the logic of Orientalism has shifted, right? So for the, the classical period of Said's work and analysis primarily, he says it's the Orient is essentially different. Right? So it's like that old Rudyard Kipling poem, East is East, West is West, never the twain shall meet. I've written that so many times to set this up. <laughs> Uh, but basically now, it's less, I think, about this essential difference and more about China's becoming the same. Yeah, so it, it's a kind of logic of sameness in, in what I also use, kind of Marxist language of general equivalence, right? So that China's basically on the same path and becoming like us, right? And it's, in other words, just kind of around the corner, right? So, you know... Uh, I think it was, uh, I know it was um, Dipesh Chakrabarti, I think, talked about it through J.S. Mill and some of the kind of classic liberal philosophers where the, the colonizers in the category of the not yet, right? They could someday become, you know, free and democratic and normal, and, but not yet, right? They were continually telling them not yet. So they were in this kind of waiting room of history, right? So in some ways, my argument is just that that, that not yet is... More like almost now. It's just this kind of just around the corner, which I think fits the couple of things. One is the kind of social science modernizing discourse approach to China in particular, right? In the 20th century. It was always that, you know, it's modernizing, it's got to modernize, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it, it, it follows even as part of that as a, as a kind of. Um, capital logic of sameness, right? So if you, this is the kind of Fred Jameson influence on me, which is the Frankfurt School one, which is really, I think, Marx's point around exchange value versus use value and, and, and this, this kind of abstract homogenizing force of exchange, which is kind of unleashed into the world of capitalism, right? So I, I think that, if it's not too much to say that, I think that this has become a kind of dominant way that we understand China, that we understand in a way the other, uh, particularly through globalization as opposed to colonialism. Right. Right. So, yeah. Great. And Thanks. that's, that's it around the logic of Orientalism, I'm trying to say. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the, bo the book um, repeatedly comes back to this very important point that you're not just talking about a discourse of China being the same, but it being in the process of becoming the same, the sort of active becoming yes. of sameness right. is, is right. Um, seems very central to what you're arguing. Now, to set up... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I just I mean, the, to characterize it just a little bit more is, you know, what's key within that is, um, I think that the kind of demonization or the repudiation of the revolutionary past and of Maoism, right? Which to some extent I think is really kind of even internalized within China, right? So it's like the, this last step on the stage of becoming the same, because it isn't actually the same, but it will be where it's in the process, right? Uh, that last step will be the repudiation of, of that like revolutionary past or the fall of the Communist Party and those things like that, right? So I think that's how it, the, the kind of linchpin to the, to the logic, I think, of the, of the discourse around China. 
Great. And just to, to clarify for listeners, again, who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, um, your, some of the major categories here that undergird the argument, maybe um, we can make explicit right from the outset. So you're, you're um, working with and you are very um, explicit about your use of these terms in the preface. So I want to make sure that you know, listeners understand that very explicit definition. But working with um, categories of the West and the Western and also categories of um, what you call alternately China studies or Sinology. So can you just very briefly um, lay out explicitly, because I think you do this very wonderfully in the book, um, what do we mean by the West and Western here um, as one of the major components of this argument? And what do we mean, or what do you mean by China studies and Sinology as the home of the discourse that you're describing? Mm. Okay, let me, uh, let me do the latter sure. one first. Um, I mean, the way that I'm using it, uh, China studies and Sinology are almost interchangeable, at least maybe this is partly a polemical point. I mean, of course, Sinology is a much older kind of philological um, kind, of, kind of discourse, although it's still used, I think, um, as a term more in Europe. Um, I see them as somewhat interchangeable in that even though China studies is more of this kind of social science social science kind of objective, you know, modern academic pursuit, I think that it shares certain things with a kind of older Sinology, right? Even though it seems much more rigorous and detailed. Those kinds of things, right? um, I think that one thing they share is what uh, Saeed says, refers to as positional superiority, right? Which he says, which I think to me is actually the, one of the best things in that book and maybe the, the key way to really understand what Orientalism is, right? So it's, it's a kind of strategy or method uh, for the analyst, and it basically said, he says that it, you know, it puts that Orientalist or that writer in a range of possible relationships with China or the Orient or whatever it is, right? So they can say an infinite number of things, but they never lose the upper hand, is what he says. So that, that, that kind of intractable uh, complexity or, or, if you will, the reality of China or the Orient can't really trump whatever that writer's going to say, almost as if he or she was going to say it anyway, right? So this, yeah, that the kind of native materials can never really trump that. You'll never get a point where you see a writer saying, well, you know what? I have no idea what this means basically, right? Mm -hmm. Or this really completely changes everything that I thought of beforehand, or this really changes what our field does. It's, it's quite rare that you see that, right? So I think that's what partly brings China studies and, and, and a kind of older Sinology together. Yeah. The West, too, I mean, it's, it's yeah, that's a surprisingly uh, complicated question, actually. <laughs> I, I think Unlike what a lot of people say, I, I, for me, it's still a kind of operative category, even though I know that it, too, is kind of, you know, socially constructed and so on. Like, I guess what I, I tend to think of it in, in a kind of world systems way is the West, in a way, politically or in terms of power, represents the kind of core, core nations, core interests, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, Put it. If we look at how do I know the West exists? Maybe that's the question. It's like, well, 
and I think I say this somewhere in the beginning of the book, but it's everybody in China, everybody in Nepal, for that matter, right? They know way more about the West and what its kind of intellectual political culture is, and its popular culture, for that matter, that kind of stuff, than vice versa, right? So I think that there is this kind of legacy which comes out of the long history of modern colonialism, etc., which which put the Western powers, or whatever you want to call them, kind of in control, right? Not just economically, but kind of politically and, and, and in a way intellectually, which is a harder one to figure out. So I think that that's still there. Sure. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that the book, um, at least from the perspective of a reader, right, coming at this from um, a, a different sort of field, right, um, is very explicitly trying to do is to not close off and sort of define very clearly these categories, um, but rather to open debate and to sort of invite debate that engages these categories in the way that you're yes. using them. So I think um, that's yeah. that seems to sort of support a more fluid treatment of these categories too, if you sure. want to. Sure. So you've already kind of mentioned um, this very briefly, um, the issue of responding to a kind of demonization of a certain period of Chinese history. and. Um, you alternately call that in here the Maoist period. Um, you explicitly um, delineate a period of 1949 to 79 in the preface. Um, and, and since you start out with this right off the bat in the preface, and you've already mentioned it, um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this. So one of the points here is um, you say in the uh, preface, um, the demonization of this period reflects Orientalist knowledge production, um, the triumph, in parentheses, of Western, now global, intellectual, political culture, and not the truth of the Mao or post-Mao eras. You say it's been notoriously abused in scholarship, as well as all other sorts of texts. So this is a very strong claim about a kind of response to a demonization that's very broadly transdisciplinary that you're characterizing here. So Ken, since that does form kind of the core of much of what we are going to um, read later in the book. Can you say a little bit about that um, as part of the core of this argument? About what? I'm sorry, exactly. Like sort about of, the... Um, the, this demonization of this period, um, I guess uh, maybe a better way to sort of get at this more precisely yeah. is in the course of thinking about this, um, the, this argument, right, and developing this, um, um, this sort of... Uh, really call for debate that you, I think, offer us in this book. What about this period stands out to you as being um, particularly worthy of engagement? What um, are some of the major features, if you could sort of briefly introduce them here, of this demonization um, that you're characterizing here that you are urging us to rethink? Um, yeah, well, you know, one thing which I think is hard for humanities, humanities type of intellectuals like myself and my various colleagues and peers to really appreciate, I think, is the economics of the period and basically of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, interestingly, actually, and I even quote a few uh, kind of much more neoclassical, what we would call kind of conservative economists to the same, to the same effect, um, uh, it's maybe becoming something of a consensus that the economic growth and achievements of the Mao period were actually pretty remarkable. And uh, this really flies in the face of the way that that period is characterized, which is that basically everybody was starving and China was just dirt 
before until some point in the 80s or 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And actually, I just don't think that that's the case, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that there was, you know, enormous kind of industrial growth, right? Mm -hmm. um, manufacturing base, et cetera, that really helps explain the kind of later takeoff through different, you know, kind of more capitalist mechanisms later. Uh, even, I think, in terms of uh, agriculture, the collective economy, the, you know, that's much more mixed because it's, it's in some ways much more difficult to modernize and, and, and um, raise living standards for so many people in the kind of rural countryside. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but even there, actually, the record is not too bad from what I've read, some of the people I've tried to, tried to quote, right? So um, it seems to me that actually then, just the, in terms of growth, in terms certainly of distribution, in terms of increases in life expectancy, access to education, um, access to culture even, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that there were really pretty remarkable uh, achievements, right? So even though that's still probably news to many people, I think that's highly significant, right? And I think it's uh, highly significant that that was done, you know, quite intentionally as a way to try to keep it as equal as possible, right? So that by, you know, the, the time of the death of Mao or the mid or late 70s, you know, China is still a poor country, right? Certainly compared to the West, right? Or I guess even what it is today, right? But it's it had the lowest Gini coefficient, right? That, that kind of economic, I forget exactly how it works, right? But it's <laughs> um, used by the World Bank. I mean, it's a standard kind of economic measure to talk about poverty, right? Mm -hmm. China's was basically, the, had the least amount of poverty in the world, I think, according to this, to this index, right? So it was very poor, right? But very equal, which in a way, you could say it was actually very rich in a sense too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and, and to point, it wasn't really really poor anyway, right? It was much poorer than it is now, but it was very equal. So anyway, I think that that is very significant, right? So I think that in some ways that those attempts at developing uh, communism or the, the attempt to kind of carry out a socialist transition to China was not all for, for naught, even though so much of that is repealed later on. Um, I think that most grandly, what I use, and you know, other people have talked about too, uh, uh, Liu Kang at Duke in Shanghai, Zhao Tong has talked about this, um, Arif Durlik has talked about this, other people, the, the notion of a kind of alternative modernity. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that too is what the, not just the Mao period, but the kind of sweep of the revolution, even from the 30s or 20s. Uh, was about that, which the way that I understand that was, first of all, it's a kind of socialist modernity, right? It's a refusal of both that kind of Russian model and what happened in Russia, and also the kind of capitalist West, which was seen as a very unequal and imperialist and that kind of thing, right? So I think that's important. I think that there was a certain respect accorded to rural people that was quite sincere, Right? I mean, it's, you could say a lot of things about Mao, what worked, what didn't work, what he was good at, bad at, etc. But uh, that position, that, that kind of commitment to social justice, and I think the dignity of rural people is absolutely consistent. You know? and, and I think that that's 
something that tends to get lost today too, right? So, you know, um, I don't think that settling the problem of the rural masses in the countryside and the kind of gap between urban development and that, you know, it seems to me really what they're trying to do now is just through, you know, migrant labors, rural migration, right? And which in some ways is just to throw up your hands and say, let's let the market sort it out, right? Which, you know, to be honest, in some ways, I suppose that is actually working. But in other ways, I find that kind of almost inhumane, right? So I think I like the, at least the attempt to carry out rural development differently, um, too, from that period. So, I mean, yeah, that, and even more prosaically, I think the culture of, culture in the narrow sense, you know, uh, the film, the kind of political ideologies, uh, the literature, etc. I think that it's, it's much more interesting and, and rich than people tend to give it credit for. And I think two of the terms that you've um, brought up in your um, discussion just now for us, difference and alternative, seem to me to get at the heart of what you're trying to, um, or what you in intend to offer us, what you are offering us here in this book. This sort of, um, and what the book does as we move forward after the first chapter, which really sets out the parameters of um, what you're characterizing as a sinological orientalist discourse and the importance of the Cold War and shaping that discourse, I think, very, very um, elegantly worked out here, is that it, um, the book takes us through chapters that, um, that um, in turn provide case studies through which you are presenting us with the possibility of an alternative to um, a dominant discourse that seems to be in each case forming the basis for the way sinological or studies of China or knowledge of China seems to have been yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that fair? Okay. That is fair. Hope I've, I've tried to do that. I mean, hopefully I've been successful, but that's up for readers to say because, I mean, well, one of the critiques of Said and the kind of Orientalism studies, if you will, is, you know, he doesn't talk about the Orient, so to speak, right? Which, of course, he says doesn't... He's, kind of mixed about that, to what extent it really exists or doesn't exist, etc. But his focus, is, as rigorous really as it was, right, is on that, in the Orientalism book, is on the Western, what he calls Western intellectual political culture, right? So it doesn't talk about it. What I've tried to do, and which made my life much more difficult, <laughs> I think, in doing the book, is try to at least indicate, um, you know, either counter-history, counter-interpretation, counter-narrative, Mm -hmm. kind of counter-narratives to that kind of Orientalist discourse, right? right? Um, yeah, so I tried to, I think, work that into most of the chapters, except for the first and last one. Yeah. Absolutely. And let's actually get right into it, because one of, after, yeah. after um, chapter one, so one of these examples um, is um, focused on the case study um, that I think will be familiar to many of our listeners, if not all of them, even, even those who don't work on anything having to do with China, and that's Tiananmen um, in 1989. Yeah. Now, this chapter looks carefully at the discourse about the 1989 Tiananmen protests, and um, characteristic of the studies in many of these chapters, the source base ranges very, very wonderfully widely um, in, in many different um, areas of discourse. Um, now, you describe three schools of Tiananmen interpretation here to give us an example of the kind of um, opening of possibilities for an alternative 
that is present, I think, in many of these chapters, you describe three schools of Tiananmen interpretation, and you call these the elite factional school, um, culturalist, and civil society approaches. Um, can you sort of, for listeners, maybe briefly explain what these are, or perhaps you'd like to choose one of them, um, elite factional culturalist and civil society that you feel is particularly um, important, um, yeah. and sort of describe how you understand them to be problematic as an example of the kind of um, analysis that you're going to be giving yeah. us in the book. Well, I think that, you know, it's funny because I try to remember writing this, and it was, because uh, <laughs> this one was a dissertation chapter, uh -huh. which, you know, I, so I'm trying to remember what the culturalist school was, but sure. anyway. Um, civil but society. I think what I do say, civil society is what kind of brings them all together, yeah. basically, and that's that's the kind of dominant coding of 1989, and it seems to be that it's, actually, it's it hasn't stopped any, right? That that's, that, so the 89 represents the birth or or the, the, the crushing or rebirth, if you go back to the teens and 20s, of civil society in China, right? And that that's going to lead to its democratization, whatever that means exactly, but I think people basically mean political democratization, multiple parties, that kind of stuff. Um, that that's going to lead to it, and that's what 89 represented, and that, you know, so then you see how this works already, because it's just like, well, then the revolutionary period, really 30s, war, civil war, imperialism, okay, no space for that, right? Mao period doesn't want any of that stuff, allegedly, right? Um, so then you get it, boom, in the 80s, it, it's back, right? So now we'll finally reach that stage, right? Mm -hmm. But then, of course, it's crushed. Um, and I think people are still really frustrated by civil society not quite appearing in China, even though there's tons of NGOs and GONGOs and, and, and tons of kind of public sphere activity. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I think that um, as tempting as it is, this is not a really great way to understand 89, at least the way that I understand it from reconstructing it through through, through texts and anthologies or documentary film and that kind of um, Yeah, that, you know, it presupposes that, first of all, there is this kind of more or less universal thing called civil society, which China lacks, right? And that once it gets that, it will kind of take care of everything, right? So it ends up being this very kind of under-theorized concept, right? Um, and I think that there's a lot of stuff that was happening there that kind of calls that into question, right? Um, as the, the one uh, documentary film, Gates of Heavenly Peace, in a way, kind of makes clear in its own ways that, you know, the students kind of failed because they weren't civil enough, basically, right? They, they kind of lacked a, a certain degree of civility and were still kind of tied to revolutionary past, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and it focuses, you know, not without reason, actually, on, on Chai Ling in particular for being almost bloodthirsty or, or willing to sacrifice people and that kind of stuff. Right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's one way to look at it, but I think that the concept doesn't necessarily fit China that well, right? I think that you can look at the protesters and the students in particular, right, and say that, you know, if they weren't talking about civil society or democracy for that matter in the ways that we wanted them to, 
maybe the problem is with our kind of categories or descriptions of it. You know, they didn't actually, in many cases, want to overthrow the party. Right? There were kind of you know some calls certainly for greater things that would benefit students, but also for you know more press freedom. Sometimes for for more parties, but not usually even that, right? I think it was largely a, a kind of demand for recognition as well, right? After they were kind of condemned, right? I think if you look at what I try to do more of in the... In other words, I don't think that's necessarily a failing, right? Or not such a tragic failing, right? Um, on their part. Okay? What I try to do in the chapter, though, is focus on worker statements and kind of worker activity and the, the kind of autonomous federation that was forming and that kind of stuff. And if you look at that, that's a very different problematic than civil society, right? They're there as, on one hand, kind of like trade unionists, right? They want a kind of independent union, but they want, you know, very obvious things that were taken from them, right, by the kind of demalification. Right? And if you look at some of their rhetoric, it's clearly uh, still in this kind of Marxist, Maoist, radical mode. Right? They can invoke Lenin. They can refer to themselves as the vanguard of the nation. Uh, they will denounce much more strongly than the students did. They will denounce Zhao Ziyang, Deng Xiaoping, those kind of things too. Right? So you know, no one really tells their story. Right? Mm -hmm. Or if they tell it, it's just about them wanting to form an independent union, which will therefore fit within civil society, right? But they're not really calling for that, right? So, I mean, Tiananmen also, to me, and I teach this in class sometimes, we try to look at the students and the workers, and so it's, it's, it's also a kind of workers movement, you know? I mean, I think that that really gets underplayed because the students started it and they kind of get all the attention afterwards, but... You know, the, the reason why that became a kind of almost de facto general strike, and I think that what really shook people up was the fact that there were so many people there. If it was just the students, it's not as big a deal. Right? So I think that, yeah, there's a certain narrative we need to tell there about workers' presence and demands and how this was, in some ways, both less radical, because it wasn't calling for overthrow of the party necessarily, right? But also more radical. Right, more radical than the civil society narrative. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. And one of the um, ways that the chapter closes is with uh, your presentation of a poem, a worker's poem called Fast Letter, which is very evocative. Yeah. Um, and it really, I think, speaks to the range of materials that you're bringing to bear in this study. Now, Tiananmen is one example um, that you are presenting to us. Another example that permeates... Um, the ways that um, you're arguing that sinological orientalist discourse uh, provides a particular way um, of understanding China is the example of the Great Leap Forward. And this is the focus of Chapter 4, so I'll move to that for a moment. Um, yeah, yeah. So this, is, um, this chapter provides an explanation of um, sort of dominant sinological orientalist interpretations of the Great Leap Forward as as well as providing, in your case, or your vision of an alternative explanation or one way of thinking about that failure from a different perspective. Now, one of, um, one of the points that this chapter makes 
um, I think very strongly is for um, it sort of your argument hinges here on the use in sinological orient orientalist discourse of data and of numeracy yes. in painting a particular yes. vision of the Great Leap Forward. Can you talk about that aspect um, of the this chapter, or really that the the importance of um, if I can phrase that a different way, uh, sort of data and numeracy and statistics in presenting a particular view of the Great Leap Forward failure, and um, talk about maybe sort of what an alternative might be. Okay. Um, yeah, this was a, this was a difficult, um, really difficult chapter to do, partly because of the kind of ethical dilemmas of it as a writer and as someone who wants to critique scholarship around the famine and how the, the famine statistics are kind of produced. Right? So you really get a weird kind of ethical uh, space right, to try to, to write about this. But uh, yeah, I'm actually leaning pretty heavily on some kind of critical economic historians and demographers, uh, particularly uh, Indian economist uh, Utsa Patnaik, who works on, on uh, agricultural history, economic history, all this really kind of detailed factual material about like amount of calories available to people. And so I have to like sort myself through all this kind of stuff, right? But she was able to offer a kind of way into how other demographers and historians and economists kind of compile famine statistics in the case of China and other places. And um, after reading that, then I was thinking of uh, Bernard Cohn, also a kind of scholar in India, and what he called the enumerative modality, which was what he calls a kind of investigative mode for uh, British colonialism in India and elsewhere. Right? So one of the ways they govern, or just one of the things they do, is they just start producing stats and facts and numbers and all this kind of stuff. Right? Almost this kind of obsession with it. So he calls it a kind of a enumerative modality. Um, so I try to hook it up to kind of colonial discourse uh, in that way, part. So, kind of getting away from it, but it's basically the way I understand this now is we don't know actually what the famine mortality is. Right? I'm not sure we know any better now than we did like 50, 60 years ago, actually, because the, the censuses weren't actually there. If I can recall this at all, off the top of my head, there was one in the late 50s before the leap which was kind of shoddy. I mean, it was 53 or 55, somewhere around there, and it wasn't a real accurate census for how many people actually are alive in China, where they are, and that kind of thing, and what the uh, mortality rate, birth rate is, that kind of stuff. Then there's one in like 63, or 60, mid-60s, and then there's not another one until 83. And 83 becomes the kind of authoritative one. But what Patnaik and other people have said is that basically actually... This is really misleading because we don't, it's not really a national um, census. And uh, what Patnaik does through critiquing Bannister and Cole and other people is says, look, people tend to arrive at this 27, 30 million figure through two kind of dodgy ways. Right? One is that it will include uh, within the mortality uh, the decline in the birth rate. Which basically means including people that weren't born as famine statistics, as, as dead, basically. But that's off, 
right? I mean, if they're not born, they can't be dead. No, maybe they weren't born because of hunger and, and, and mass mobilization and all that kind of thing. Sure, but that's a kind of different question. Right? The other thing that, that happens with these censuses then that are incomplete, right? everybody knows they're incomplete, is they have to kind of make up a, they have to project retrospectively what the birth rate and death rate was. Yeah. And what Padnaik says is, Another thing people do is they they, they see this um, death rate kind of naturally going down through this one period of the 60s, right? So they make it kind of linear, right? So it'll kind of progress in a, in a kind of straight line, right? And she says, actually, you know, the, the Chinese demographers and historians are doing this, but that doesn't make any sense because death rates don't act in this linear fashion. If they did, they would eventually reach zero, Right? which means nobody dies, right? So that doesn't really work either, right? So anyway, to make this kind of long, very complicated story short, um, Patnaik says basically the, the, the 27 to 30 million figure is really pretty unreliable. And uh, from her own analysis, it seems more like 10, right? Um, now, other people have gone back and more recently said, you know, 45 million or 60 million, that kind of which then starts to, and these are more kind of popularized accounts that aren't very specialized, but they kind of go from maybe a uh, almost word of mouth. So I think Chen Yizhe said something before he was kind of uh, fled the country that he saw some report somewhere that was official and said it was like 30-some million, that kind of thing. It ends up almost getting like hearsay and kind of talk it becomes an even more uh, kind of cultural discourse in some ways, right? So that, you know, just because it happens in China, it has to involve a massive amount of people and a massive amount of deaths, right? So I call that a, a kind of trope of the, the Chinese proportions, right? This has to have happened in Chinese proportions because it's so big, right? So when you start looking at this, and then when you start looking at actually how the numbers are kind of unreliable, but how it seems to go up every year, you do tend to see this weird um, logic around uh, enumerating or counting this. Right? And no one really will say why, right? And I, I think that it's basically to further demonize and delegitimize the malware and collective agriculture and things like that, certainly. But I think it does kind of uh, get a kind of Philip or something, if you will, from a kind of colonial discourse accounting. This is what we do, right? This is what we do with the other. This is what we do with China. We don't have to colonize it necessarily. You know, we're not there. But we're still going to just kind of account for it and produce all these numbers, produce all these statistics, right? Or they don't do that for their own place, but they do it for China. And this sort of importance of, um, you mentioned just now, massive number of people and massive number of deaths, this importance of the mass, right, and the mass of people um, leads um, or continues into the next chapter where you're talking about here um, Don Delilo, in particular Delilo's Mao Tu and Warhol um, and what you're calling the sort of the specter of Mao and the sinologization Forgive my early morning yeah, yeah. pronunciation here <laughs> of global. I think thought. I made up for it anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it reads very well. It's my, you know, oh. I clearly need more coffee. 
Um, but this, uh, you're, I think you're also making a point here in an analysis of these um, very different um, kinds of sources than um, you're looking at in previous chapters of sort of mode of cultural production about China that also emphasizes the importance of the crowd, the mass. Right. Um, yeah. So the, the sort of fascination um, of with mass belonging and sheer numbers of victims is, is characterized as a particular way of depicting you know, Mao, at, you know, Mao becomes China, becomes whatever. So can you, um, for listeners who may not have um, read Mao too, or may not be familiar with Delilah, can you speak a little bit, um, when thinking about this chapter and this issue, to um, Delilah, sort of what, fa- what about this book particularly fascinates you, and how does the depiction of Mao and the sort of the phenomena around um, sort of mass belonging and um, sheer numbers and China, um, for you, characterize a particular way of thinking about and writing China in Sinological Orientalist discourse broadly conceived? I think you've just, in a way, described it in the, in the sense that it's, it's this obsession with the massness of it and kind of anonymity of it. And the, the, the Delulu novel is 91, I think, which is really quite early, right? You th- I mean, this is before the 9-11 thing, and it's all about terrorism and terror, right? So it was very prescient in that way, and he was someone who was really kind of thinking about this and is very disturbed by the prospect of terror, which in a way kind of makes sense, but then what he understands as terror is another question, um, and then he's also disturbed, I think, in the he or the central character, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to describe it to... To the novelist, um, doesn't matter to me actually, one way or the other. But um, obsessed and, and, and a bit freaked out by the massness of really of the Orient, frankly. I mean, it, the it's, it uses the Warhol mouths on the cover. The the first editions of it at least had like snapshots. I think there were Tiananmen, which also comes up. The one character is watching Tiananmen on the screen. Uh, the the Moonies the so-called movies, the, those mass marriage ceremonies that were broadcast, those kind of actually opened the book, right? So you've got one character, this woman, who is obsessed with watching these masses, right? She's kind of attracted to it. She's not quite freaked out by it. But the problem is she's set up in the book as basically a crazy person. I mean, she's kind of mentally disturbed in some ways. And, of course, it's a woman, right? For the strange representations of women. Um, so anyway, um, I think that the central character, and I do think you know, the implied author, whatever you want to call it, are really kind of bothered by this massness, which they see as connected to terror. Right? And I think it, you know, it represents this, I think, a kind of loss of individuality. Right? So this, the, the kind of modern, normal, individual self right, uh, is under threat. That's the real threat from terrorism. And the terrorists, the so-called terrorists are all Asians. <laughs> Basically, they're in Beirut, they're in uh, Korea, they're in China. They're, I mean, they're, it's this weird perturbation, if that's a word, brought on by the specter of this mass. In that way. Um, so, I, I mean, I do think it's an interesting novel that, that, that's worth reading. Yeah, but I think it really kind of represents a, a kind of attraction, but, but fear mm-hmm. of the massness of, of China and of the 
old-fashioned orient in some ways, which it will hook up with terrorism. Yeah. Um, so, you know, politically, it's a very kind of strange book. I mean, it's, it's kind of seeing this individual person as the individual unit, or if you will, the, the artist as being under threat. The novelist can be no more, that kind of thing. You know I mean, so it's interesting because it, it, it obviously sees then a so-called mass relationship with collective politics uh, in Beirut in that book, or whatever the mass wedding ceremony means to people, that kind of stuff. It sees those in very antagonistic ways or pathologized ways. So the norm is really clear, I think, in, in Delillo's book, right? That it's that kind of liberal individual self who's going to be autonomous, right? Who's still there, but he sees that clearly is on its way out and kind of troubled by the world, but, you know, disturbed by the one. But the other point of that uh, chapter and looking at Warhol connected it to the Great Leap Famine bit, which I think connects it to other parts of the, of the um, book, is that this Orientalist discourse about China is not only a product of the kind of area studies scholarship, it's, it's not a kind of isolated ism or bias or something like that. I really think that the ways that China is understood and represented and constructed comes through multiple sources. It comes through popular culture, it comes from old kind of, you know, stereotypes and biases, but it can come through, you know, kind of professional, seemingly objective, specialized work as well. So it goes back to, well, what is China studies? You know, China studies can't be contained by just the academic pursuit of it, right? I mean, I think that, you know, it's a hard thing, I guess, to kind of parse, but what we do when we study an area or what our field is, our other influences from that kind of culture at large are very strong, right? And I think that, you know, I couldn't even count them all or, or, or do an adequate job, I think, of, of tabulating them in two more books, but I think that that's the case, you know? So it's, yeah, it's quite diffuse, and that's how I see it as a kind of, well, that's what I kind of mean by sinologization, I think, where it's, it's, it's not just sinology or area studies, it's all these other kind of confluence of, of, of factors and streams of thought and things like that, that that make us see China in particular ways, or make us see whatever it might be in particular ways. Now, in some ways, that's, um, I, I, we've taken up a lot of your time already, and in some ways, that's no, a, a, a wonderful way of, um, of bringing this to a close, but I don't want to bring this to a close without giving you an opportunity to talk about um, one of the chapters here that you know looks at these sets of problems from another perspective, which is your chapter and your discussion about film. Um, it's uh, oh, yeah. so, so I want to at least give you an opportunity um, before we we close up to talk yeah, about sure. that. So you have um, you have a chapter here in discussion that in some ways evokes um, what you. Uh, tell us, got you into this field, or one of the things that got you interested in China in the first place, which is the yeah, that's right. the, the depiction of China, um, not just in discourse about Chinese film, but in some ways within the production of film in China itself, right? And this is sort of part of um, the discussion. So can you talk um, sort of about perhaps um, two related ideas? So one, in what ways... Um, has sort of Chinese language film studies appropriated this kind of a discourse about China? And is there any of the films that you talk about here, um, and you and you talk about many of them, that you want to single out as being particularly notable for its 
power to um, say something about this argument that you are giving us. And, and you mentioned just to you know, break, yeah, Wen yeah. Hua's breaking with old ideas, Chen Kaiga's yellow earth, Zhang Yimou's to live, Jiang Wen's in the heat of the sun, and you also talk about the gate of heavenly peace. Oh, that's right. Um, so, well, the, the argument kind of against, so to speak, film studies, um, is that it really borrows this kind of social science what I call kind of Cold War colonial discourse. It just basically borrows it, right, and says, look, this is the background. This is the historical context, that kind of stuff. So, and, and I think maybe the field is changing a little bit now, um, but certainly in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, it was very strongly, I think, in the way that I characterized it, right? So anything from the Mao era will be either not really paid attention to or written about in kind of predictable ways, right? That it's propaganda, it's really not of any interest. Um, so I think that it tends to borrow the historical and factual or empirical stuff about the non-film world of China, it just borrows it pretty much wholesale, right? Which I think is unfortunate, basically, because it, it should be a bit better than that. Um, yeah. So I think what I tried to do was critique some of the film history and just these kind of grounds. Right? Um, I also tried to look at a few of the food. We already talked about Yellow Earth, I think, at the beginning. That kind of thing. It's that film and um, To Live, uh, those kind of things, they're much more ambivalent and uh, in a way much more interesting, but much more ambivalent about that revolutionary past than the film criticism and film studies makes it out to be, right? So, yeah, I think that, I'm trying to remember all the details, I think with Yellow Earth, this one is just fairly clear, right? Although you wouldn't really know that from looking at least the first generations of, of, of response to that film, um, you know, that it is, it's, you know, doing a kind of arty film, art film kind of thing with an ambiguous ending to it, right? But that's not necessarily an anti-communist gesture, right? I think that's an aesthetic kind of gesture uh, to it. I think it really talks about how there was a need for revolution in the uh, countryside, right? A need for all of these things, and that maybe it hasn't happened yet, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary, right? Um, yeah, so, and I think even to live, I, was, I haven't watched that film in a long time, but there are moments in it where it seems to me, Zhang Yimou, who is, who is such a kind of crafty filmmaker, yeah, and I think he's... He gets really demonized now because people think he's kind of a, a show for the party and the nation. And, you know, I think he's a patriotic guy, right? I mean, I think he earnestly feels the way he feels, right? Whether you agree or disagree is a, a different question. But there's a scene there where uh, the parents come rushing back to the house because the daughter and then her, like, red guard boyfriend at the time, they overhear that they're, like, destroying the house. They're going to crash, trash their house and kill them or something like that. So they go back, and then of course you have this moment where they're actually on the roof fixing the fixing the place up, and they're painting it, and they're fixing the roof, and all this kind of stuff. Which actually staged for me, even in someone like John Yumal, who's not a terribly political thinker or terribly profound political thinker, just like really all the fifth generation people, really. Um, but uh, 
kind of playing with that expectation that maybe we have, right? So I think that even folks like this, right, who were part of that kind of 80s elite cultural fever moment, even they are more ambivalent about that kind of cultural revolution or Maoist past, right? So I don't think they quite fit that, right? So then the Dwayne the the Breaking with Old Ideas, the 1975 film that I did a reading of, and I, I teach this one in classes all the time now. I'm not sure if students are getting sick of it or not, but I think it's actually a really interesting film because it, it offers you this kind of late Maoist vision of what education should be and what the cultural revolution is. Yeah. It's not stupid, right? It's very emphatic. It's very impassioned. It's, it's not interested so much in characterization or anything. It's trying to make a really political argument. Yeah about, you know, two-line struggle, about the market, about how women can do whatever men can do. The, 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 the central, really, protagonist of the film is the one young woman student, right? She's fierce, she's smart, she's angry, she's a single mother, basically, because the husband's never around. So it's just kind of this really interesting text that, you know, there is actually something to this vision that the Li Wenhua and whoever else is making that film have of China, yeah? and that they connect it to actually the Great Leap Forward, because right? mm-hmm. it's set for the Great Leap, even though it's this kind of cultural revolution. So I think you know it really has something to offer in terms of giving us an image now that it's been so repudiated, uh, unfortunately, I think in many ways, of what that cultural revolution left, but almost official vision was, mm-hmm. you know what it meant and what it was thinking of, what its kind of vision of rural society education in China was. You know? And I think that, you know, the, the, the current party state is, of course, so... I mean, Wang Kui talks about this, many people talk about this, that they are so intent on distancing themselves from the actual political history of their party, right? I mean, so repudiation of the Cultural Revolution, right? They don't really talk about the great... I don't think they really particularly care if I even get into it from their perspective because they've decollectivized everything anyway, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that, um, interestingly, like in the case of these films, there's more nuance and, and much more there than it meets the eye or the, the, the way that the field has really constructed it. And I think they part of that comes from what they think they already know about the actual social political history. Well, thanks so much, Dan. Now, we, we've taken up a ton of your time, and there are several oh, chapters of the book that we haven't talked about at all. Um, there are chapters about Maoism. Um, there's a closing chapter that talks about um, Orientalism and the global economy that sort of acts as a conclusion yeah. to the book. Is there anything in particular that we haven't had time to talk about or haven't had the chance um, that, especially for listeners who may not yet have had the chance to read the book, um, you want to point out or mention about the work? Um, <laughs> I feel like I should say that it's it's much more detailed or concrete, I think, than I've tend to talk about it within these kind of abstract theoretical. So I think you can actually kind of read it. I mean, I, I think what really what the bulk of the book in a way is trying to do is look at maybe even most, I think it's primarily area studies, texts and discourse, right? As well as kind of 
agricultural theory, some say that kind of stuff, right? But, but look at it and say, look, if we kind of scrutinize these writings, we see a kind of colonial discourse, a kind of Orientalist discourse emerging from, I mean, it, it's not really about labeling any particular analysis or, 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 or person, but looking at it in its kind of totality, right, of all the stuff that's said, right, and other sources from, you know, literature or, or, or cultural theory or whatever it is, and how that kind of uh, flows together. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I don't want to, the last chapter gets into an argument about uh, Orientalism and capitalism and how we should kind of understand the relationship. But much of the book is, I think, also hopefully concrete, because my thing was, unless I can, I can just say, well, China studies is Orientalist, or it's also impacted by colonial discourse. I think it's very easy to say that. I think it's more difficult to show it. Yeah. And if I've had success in the book, I hope that it's because I've been able to kind of painstakingly go over some of the accounts and ways that it's, the way that China is kind of written and constructed. Absolutely. And, and for listeners, it's, it's very detailed in terms of identifying particular works, particular um, authorial voices and that, that, um, you know, that you want to engage with as part of this argument. So what's next for you? So now that this is out, and congratulations that it's out, what are you working on now? What's most inspiring you in terms of your research now? Well, I am... Uh, this just came out in late November, I think when it was released. So I'm still dealing with the aftermath. <laughs> uh, I've been writing a little, little bit recently on kind of Asia and inter-Asian studies and post-colonial theory and kind of things. So that'll be one um, kind of ongoing concern of mine as well is not just China, but how Asia as a really kind of poorly unifying, almost transcendental concept gets kind of continually gets used. Um, mm-hmm. But what I want to do is a, uh, maybe not quite a sequel, uh, but an extension of this kind of critique of, uh, of sinological orientalism by looking at uh, a number of more recent things like post-Tiananmen, post-90s even, in China. So, been working on the question of kind of new left discourse in China and its debates with liberalism and how this is actually in some ways about post-colonialism even though they don't necessarily call it that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that it's been interesting to see uh, with the so-called rise of China a kind of more assertive China, of course, in many ways, but also a kind of new left intellectual response to the kind of stuff that I think I'm talking about in this book, right? And that I think, I know it's always actually partly inspired my perspective on this, so being able to read people like Wang Kui years ago and, and meet some other people in China and find out what they're doing about me write this book. So I'd like to kind of basically keep that going. Um, I have a title, which is, I want to call it... Um, Excuse me. Seeing like an other state, which is a kind of reference or pun on James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, which made a very powerful and influential kind of case for the horrors of the modern state and thinking in terms of that kind of way. And and I think, though, that 
China's a little bit different with this way. I mean, people are obsessed with the Chinese state, right? That this is supposed to be the worst thing about China, right? Um, and maybe because it's just the first thing that people say or something like that, maybe I have a contrarian nature, but I don't buy it. I've never quite bought that. I don't, when I go to China, if, assuming I'm not in China right now because I'm in Hong Kong, uh, which I kind of think I am, but that's another question. Um, I think, I don't see this oppressive state all the time. I don't see this, I know that it can be a very powerful state, very heavy-handed state, that kind of stuff. But I think that it's probably not as powerful as we think, right? And I think, actually, in some ways, that's bad. In some ways, that's good, but, right? But, you know, I think that how we would understand what the state in general is in political theory, I think it would probably be, be challenged by China, right? Everyone wants to say that it's got too much state, but I think part of its problem, coming from some of the new left people, too, who said it's too, is that in some ways it's got too little. The kind of market failures and, you know, the, 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 some of the horrible things that go on, right? So the, the blind activist Chen Guangcheng, who was just now in the U.S., I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, his abuse... I don't think it comes from the central state. I mean, it, in a way, it comes from the central state, right? But, you know, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, whatever we can say about them, they probably don't want that guy to be harassed, actually, right? I don't think that they want that. Just like they, years ago when they found the child labor in a brick factory in, in Shanxi or something, like that. we could say a lot about Wen Jiabao, also about his fear of the Cultural Revolution. But they don't want that to happen, right? So I think that how the Chinese state works and fails and not is something that we could probably understand. So that's one of the questions that I'm interested in with this, is, as well as kind of more post-colonial questions, right? Uh, uh, one of the kind of a consensus within post-colonial studies is that nationalism is fairly monolithic and it's almost by definition bad, right? And it is based on exclusions. There's no question about that. But I think that there's such a kind of variety of nationalisms within China, and as I'm trying to figure out maybe also in Vietnam, I'm trying to learn something about Vietnam so I can write about it someday. Right? I think that there's a kind of really interesting mix of that. And I think that basically the state nationalism and even revolution today, the legacies of that in China, maybe Vietnam, like I said, if I can get enough time to, to learn something about it, uh, I think that those are, how is that, just not understood in a thick enough way, I think, yet, mm -hmm. right? by, you know, post-colonial studies or political theory. So that's, that's what I'm interested in right now. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Um, best of luck with that project, and thanks for making time um, to talk with us tonight, or this morning, tonight, depending on where you're, where you're sitting, yes. about the book. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes, thanks, thanks so much, and thanks so much for having me on You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.